So, Angela. Yes, Catherine. What is one thing you are particularly looking forward to doing this year, 2021? Right now, I'm obsessed with touching people. <laughs> I fantasize about it. <laughs> like, I, I got a little preview because I got to hug and kiss my mother and father. But now I'm like, I want to see my friends. I want to, you know, get their consent and then kiss them on the mouths. I want to go to a dance party. I want to brush up against strangers. I'm feeling this kind of like platonic horniness, I guess. <laughs> what about you, Catherine? What are you looking forward to? I am looking forward to a multi-hour indoor dinner party mm. with passing the dishes around, everybody sharing things, mm. and then the kids are in the other room doing something and you don't care. Yeah. <laughs> just all, a yes. big, big pile of kids in there just doing You're something. collectively ignoring them. Yes. Yes. While you have a nice dinner party with adults. That's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's um, that sounds... Amazing. <laughs> this is The Double Shift, the show that challenges the status quo of motherhood. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. And I'm your co-host, Angela Garbez. The reason I asked you about what you were looking forward to is I do feel like we're in this moment where, like, it, it does feel like many things are going to get better this year. Like, I don't want to jinx anything, but it feels like we're coming out of some very, very dark times. Yeah, this strange feeling of hope that I have that I actually am able to trust a little bit. Right. But I also think that part of the transition right now is also coming to terms with what's happened to us in the past year. Just because we get to go on vacation or hug our parents and grandparents doesn't mean by any means that we're healed from the personal and collective trauma of right. the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think we just have to be honest that it's not going to be a snap of the fingers to recover from what we've gone through this year. And I mean, how do we even start to get our heads around it? I mean, the yeah. emotional toll, the grief. Yeah, the grief is overwhelming. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly why we wanted to do today's episode, to start to be able to wrap our minds around how we come to terms with all that we've lost and what has happened over the last year. Magizio dekwe dijnikaz pagwashin donjaba nishnabe kwe indau makwadodem. My name is Andrea Landry. I come from a small community in northwestern Ontario called Paceblat, but we call it pagwashin in our mother tongue. I currently reside on Palmaker Cree Nation. It's in Saskatchewan, Canada, colonially named. Andrea teaches at First Nations University in their Indigenous Social Work program. She's also a life skills coach and a freelance writer. And she's an activist whose advocacy is infused in every part of her life, including motherhood. So we came across her blog and Twitter account that has so many interesting perspectives on her personal experiences, but also her thinking about collective grief and trauma that her Native community has been grappling with for generations. So we wanted her expertise on the emotional experiences so many of us are going through but also how they tie into larger political issues and why, especially for mothers, 
dealing with the emotions of the past year is about more than just a, you know, personal thing. It's actually essential to our political liberation. Yes. And this is a really fascinating idea we're going to get into with her. We wanted to talk to Andrea in this moment to start a conversation about grief and how we start to process it. So Andrea lives with her four-year-old daughter, RJ, and her partner, Colby. And they have been living in pretty strict isolation in the last year when we spoke with her, especially to help protect elderly relatives they are close with. Andrea says a saving grace during these rough times has been access to the land. Yeah, so this is a really, really big reserve. My reserve back home, where I live in northwestern Ontario, where I'm from, has 90 people on reserve. Our houses are right side by side. It's literally a cul-de-sac off the highway. This community, when I first moved here, I was blown away because it's kilometers long. Houses are so spread out. Like, we have a horse pasture. We have horses. We have, you know, the ability to go for a walk for three kilometers and you won't come in contact with anybody. And that's how we're we're very, very lucky in that. And so, yeah, it's it's been, for me, it was quite different moving here, seeing how spread out and isolating it is because you don't see people, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting because so many people are experiencing isolation right now, even if they are living in a dense apartment building. I mean, I think... Um, and, and so thinking about this, this has been sort of a, a time of not only isolation, but really a time of tremendous loss for so many people. In a way, I think we aren't really talking about and processing enough. And I was wondering, what has been your experience of, you know, grief in your life and how is that informing how you are seeing what's happening right now with so many people finding um, or needing to find ways to grieve? It's been hard with with COVID. We've lost a relative, one of Colby's uncles from the States. He passed away from COVID. We've had health complications from family members due to COVID. And what I've found is that during isolation, a lot of stored emotions are doing their best to come out, regardless of if we're attempting to shove them down deeper or if we're unaware of it. And so the reality is there's no other choice for me but to face what I have to face, what I've been ignoring. And so in my life, you know, grief has been huge. And you can go to any Indigenous community. And I used to work in, in public schools on reserve. And I used to talk about grief with children. And as young as grade two, I would ask them the question, how many of you have a loved one in heaven? Every child in that class will raise their hand. Some will say, I have two, or I have three, or I have four. It's their moms, it's their dads, it's their uncles, it's their aunties, and it's their siblings. So a lot of children in our communities are struggling with high-profile losses. And that was, that was the reality. And so for me, I lost my mom five, five and a half, almost six years ago now. And I lost my brother to suicide three years ago. And it was these back-to-back griefs that seem to happen all the time. It's like, it's never just one. You know, it always has to be more than one. And for me, I was pregnant when I lost my mom. And she died from a ruptured brain aneurysm suddenly. Her and I were were best friends. We repaired our relationship to the point where we could be best friends. And for me, there's this teaching that the baby that I'm carrying could hear every thought I was hearing and feel every feeling I'm feeling. 
And I knew that when I was pregnant with my daughter. And I knew that if I didn't allow my grief to come out, that my baby would carry it and it would be ingrained in her DNA. And so as I was going through the, the grieving process of my late mom, I, I felt it as often as I could. So sitting in the bathtub, having full-on conversations with my mom, sitting on the kitchen floor. The first time I made spaghetti after she died because she was the one who taught me how to make spaghetti when I was a kid and feeling all that that came with that and all these little triggers, even before COVID, like crying in a grocery store because her favorite song was playing and this woman walked by who smelled exactly like my mom. And I was like, mm. what? <laughs> and I was sobbing in the grocery store. And so for me, it's like, allowing myself to feel regardless of where I am, regardless of who's watching. Even in front of my daughter, the grief still comes up. When my late brother committed suicide, it was like I I grieved openly in front of her. And I would just say, I'm, I miss my brother or I miss my mom. They're in heaven right now. And I would cry. And so it was showing her, you know, healthy ways to grieve openly. So grief has played a huge role in my life and I know it will continue because that's life. Life and death is a major yeah. part of our existence. And for me, it's just about dealing with it in the, the healthiest way that I can. I love what you said. Um, it was such an, an elegant way of saying it, that those big feelings in grief, they, f they do their best to find their way out. Yeah. Right. I think that's a really <laughs> interesting way of saying that. Um, it's, it's very generous towards the emotions, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit more about this process, though. I mean, it's a very difficult, I can't even imagine, you know, to lose your mother and especially that you were, you were at a place where you had done a lot of work to repair that relationship. Yeah. Right. And then to lose her while you were pregnant would be you know, I imagine that's devastating. And that idea of wanting to, you write really beautifully about releasing grief, how that is really everything because the grief wants to come out. But it's it's interesting, this idea that you want to release it because you know if you keep it inside, that fetus, that baby is affected by it. But then the emotion, she's going to be affected by it no matter what. Yeah, for sure. So then you find the way to to deal with that. But I I just really, I think there, I feel like you have something to say here about the process of grieving while also mothering. Yeah. So when I, when RJ was smaller and even now, there was this societal belief ingrained in me as a mother that hide your sadness, even hide your anger as a mother. Mm. Don't show your child, your vulnerability. And so often you see it in society where mothers are forcing themselves to hide in bathrooms and closets to feel their feelings rather than openly expressing their feelings in front of their children. And for me, when that feeling came, it was like, well, why do I have this belief? And I had to do mm. some deep self-inquiry and it came down to, I was never exposed to healthy ways of feeling feelings when I was a child. Yeah. And so my mother's rage, my mother's trauma, my mother's sadness from the intergenerational impacts of residential schools, from colonization, from all these things that have happened to our people, she in turn was never raised with how to healthily feel emotions. And so for me, the next question was, well, how can I express my emotions in a healthy way? And my partner introduced me to something called journey work. You could look it up. It's by Brandon Bays and, and Kevin Billet. And they've created these processes where it's simply about just feeling the emotions without the stories. Hmm. 
And so for me, it was like, if I have rage yesterday, I had rage in my body and full disclosure, my partner and I weren't getting along and I, I felt all this rage come up. And for me, my, my first exposure to rage as a child was like through abuse and trauma and I'm breaking those cycles. So for me, it's like, what do I need to do to feel this rage? And it's like, I'm going to sit on the floor and I'm just going to let my body vibrate. And my daughter's standing there watching and I'm like, I'm just feeling my anger, baby. It's okay. You know, and, and she'll, she'll create that space. She'll go play. She doesn't take it personally. She doesn't think it's her responsibility to fix me. I'm like, it's, it's my responsibility to feel through this and I'm doing it in a safe way, in a healthy way. And so now what we're witnessing with her is when she has a feeling, she'll say, I just need to feel my feelings. And it's like, well, what do you need to do to feel it in a safe way? And she'll do it. She'll either cry or sometimes she yells or sometimes she just stands there and goes, like, like how I do it. It's like I'm a, mm -hmm. I'm a witness. I've become the frame of reference for her to healthfully, in a healthy way, express emotions. And that's my goal. In terms of, you know, when we're talking about loss and grief, um, there's something that you wrote that's really that's really stuck with me. Um, and I think it's really applicable to this time um, in the pandemic. And obviously, you lost your mother and you were grieving that um, before the pandemic happened. But you wrote about how you just, it's amazing how much you want to touch. You, you, you miss that touch and you need that, like you feel that in your body and your skin. And I just wondered if you could talk about what that's like now. Yeah, I think it's a, a automatic human need, like a biological need to, for physical touch. And I'm lucky I have my partner and my daughter, you know, for hugs and whatever else. And there's this this thing that I've been noticing where whenever I went home, it was like this instant connection to my late mom and late brother every time, even though they're not there physically. It's like I, I go to my home community and it's like they're here still. You know, they, they're, I can still keep in touch with them. And so I think the biggest thing for me has been not being able to go home and physically connect with our homeland and not being able to physically connect with that part of me. As Indigenous peoples, we see land as kin. You know, land is our family. Uh, land is my relative, and I treat it accordingly. When I go outside, I I. I talk to the plants, I talk to the trees, I, mm -hmm. my daughter does the same. And when I'm in my homeland, it's like I'm meeting, reuniting with my kin as soon mm -hmm. as I see that lake, Lake Superior. And so when I go home and, and not being able to access that, there's this deep, deep longing inside where I long to reconnect I long to sit with my cousins and laugh with them. I long to sit with my my aunties and uncles and go fishing and do all the things that we do out there and feel the touch of the land on my, the bottoms of my feet, on the soles of my feet, or feel my my hands brush against the lake water or the ice. And the reality is I can't do that. And I've I've... I've grieved it and I have been grieving it and I cry about it. And I tell RJ, I, I miss going home. I miss my family. I miss the ability to bond with my, my family. Like I'm so far away. I'm so far away over here because she misses my homelands too. She talks about it every day. When can we go to pace? But, oh, we'll go when the virus has gone. Hey mom, 
We've we've done vision boards. So we do vision boards every year. And the first thing she put on the vision board was for the year was go to Paceblad because she wants to go so bad. And I'm like, I know I want to go too. Like I miss it so much. And so it's like finding a way to make do in the meantime, right? So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We're building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening It's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. So one of the things that I keep thinking about, that image of when you were pregnant with your daughter sobbing in the grocery store as like that was just what you needed to do in the moment and to to feel your feelings 
And then juxtaposing that with so often mothers don't give themselves that space and support. And I'm just wondering, you know, what would happen if we stopped managing our emotions? <laughs> like, what what is a world where mothers aren't feeling like all they can, the only thing they can do for themselves is to quote manage their emotions? We'd feel more liberated. We'd we'd see more liberated mothers out there. We as mothers have learned these behaviors from our mothers and our mothers' mothers. Where yeah, it's important to put our families first. It's important to do the things that we we do daily. And your family won't fall apart if you take 10 minutes to let out your feelings safely. Yeah, your family will still carry on. They'll be okay. And you'll you'll feel a lot better because you'll come out there and you'll be like, yeah, I'm ready to go again. Like, yes, this is awesome. I always feel like I'm floating <laughs> on a cloud after I let out my rage and, and sadness in, in, in healthy ways. And then all of a sudden I'm ready to go play with my daughter again and mm-hmm. really engage rather than this pseudo- play that I do with her when I'm feel- when my emotions are stuffed in my body. Yet when I allow myself to feel my feelings, even if I know that supper has to be made, or I know that the house has to be clean because I only have 15 minutes to clean the house today because of everything else. It's like, it's all right if the house is a bit messy. What's important is I, I need to feel. And I, I tell my daughter, I need to feel. Can you give me a couple of minutes? I need to feel. And she, she knows. And she's the same. I need to feel. <laughs> I'm like, okay, feel that. Awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. It's awesome. I mean, I love this idea too, that if mothers let go of feeling the need to manage our emotions, we'd all, we all smiled as soon as you said yeah. that, Catherine, all three of us were like, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> that what we would have is this feeling of liberation. And so I kind of want to jump on that and and talk about, you know, it, on our show, we, we talk so much about collective values and action and how important that is and, and you know how necessary it is to challenge just like the dominant, and especially in the United States, this culture of individualism. And I think there's something to me, it's like if, if people felt more liberated and we f- we didn't manage our emotions, we would also talk about them more and we would recognize them in other people, even at a distance, you know? So there would be this sort of shared experience that's easier to tap into, right? And certainly COVID makes all of that more relevant. So I wondered if, if you could talk about that. Are you seeing or are you sensing changes in conversation and our perception of collectivity and the importance of of shared values and action. Yeah. So prior to colonization in our traditional kinship systems, we had these structures in place and these teachings ingrained in us where new mothers were never alone, where people who have lost a loved one were never alone. There were people cooking. There were people taking care of the children. There was always someone there. Yet colonization came and capitalism, patriarchy, all sexism, all these other things. And a lot of the time, mothers are left to fend for themselves, regardless of their circumstances and situations. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's it's been a challenge in recognizing, especially during COVID, like we can't go support the new mom. We, I'm sure we could, you know, we could bake a, bake a dish and drop it off at their front doorstep, and you know, do all these little things. But the reality is, it's really challenging to get back to that collective way of living. Okay, so going back to before she became a mom, Andrea was involved in movements to improve conditions and services for Indigenous communities in Canada. 
She's made the choice not to use the word decolonize to describe her work, and we wanted to know how her indigenous values are present in how she thinks about social and public policy. Nine or ten years ago, I was at the UN. I was advocating for indigenous rights. I was meeting with Stephen Harper, the prime minister at the time, pushing these these different indigenous agendas. And I realized you can't change colonial systems because they're founded on colonial beliefs. So regardless of how many times I begged for clean drinking water, regardless of how many times I begged for help for suicide epidemics in our communities, I wasn't going to get an answer from them. And so for me, it was like, yeah, we can't change how these systems perceive and operate because these systems are working for them. These systems are working for them, and that's how they were intended and designed. So for me, it's not about putting energy into colonial systems to change and dismantle them. For me, it's about putting energy and and investing time and energy into Indigenous systems and revitalizing them in different ways. And so I'm not going to waste energy on decolonizing an institution. I'm going to spend all my time and energy in showing RJ how to grow her own food, how to learn her language. So her and her dad are taking Cree classes every Tuesday online because he didn't learn it. They're learning their mother tongue. You know, mine is Anishinaabemo and it's a different language. They're pretty similar though. So that's where I've really placed my energy because I burned myself out too many times, you know, crying, crying around at the UN. (laughs) It wasn't doing anything. So for me, it's like the little actions that add up. It's like me and RJ, we snare rabbits out in the bush. Snaring season is over now because the rabbits are mating and we don't want to kill mama mama bunnies. But during the wintertime, it's what we do. And we usually only get one or two. And I believe that that's because we don't actually need that food to survive. Mm-hmm. So when we get that meat, we bring it to our Colby's auntie and uncle who love rabbit soup. You know, and it's like, we brought this for you. And they love it because mm-hmm. that's the stuff they grew up on when they were kids. And it, it, it looks like these little tiny ways of helping that add to the collective. Because there were times in my life when I was in my grief and when Colby was away for, for work and RJ was a newborn and I was alone for days on end. Not only was I suffering from uh, postpartum depression, suffering from grief, like there were days where it was like, how today I'm like, how the hell did I make it out alive? Like that was insane, insane. Like what the heck? And, uh, For me, it's like we've lost that sense of collectivity, yet we're doing our best to make that collective still exist. And so it's like showing RJ that we still have to take care of our relatives, even if we can't visit them in tiny ways, be there for them, support them. Yeah. And so it's just about getting creative in our in our solutions. Did you ever have any experiences when you were a new mom about struggling with reaching out to ask for help and oh, yeah. and and even even knowing all these things like uh, sometimes even we can think we're going to do things one way or they're going to be one way and that's not the reality. Could could you share some a story about that experience for you? Yeah. I think for me, that's still my struggle. It's always been asking for help has been my struggle. And and the self-inquiry, the question that came like, well, what's stopping me? And for me, it's shame. It's shame of unworthiness of I can't, of not being able to say out loud that I can't do it alone. And it's like, I can't do it alone. Like, and that's okay. But for me, it was like avoiding that shame completely 
by not asking for help and then in turn suffering, right? <laughs> and so for me, it's been um, a way of, of maneuvering through that. And so an example of that, my daughter, she breastfed till she was three and a half and she was up every two hours literally for three and a half years and I don't like I was working and I'm like oh how am I doing this and uh my my partner would be gone for work and it would just be me and her and some days I was so like I was so exhausted some days that I would start like seeing little hallucinations that's how tired I was Mm. and it was in those moments where it was like I need help And so because it was pre-COVID times, thankfully, I was able to, my mother-in-law, she was really busy with work. She had just lost her husband, right? So she's in her grief too. And I I give her so much credit because she would come over for an hour, even in her heavy grief, the love of her life. She lost the love of her life. And she would come over to this new love of her life, you know, this little baby. And let me hold her. You go rest. And I'd have that hour. And sometimes that hour is like the miracle cure. It's like, oh my God, I feel like a brand new mom, (laughs) right? And so for me, it was like letting go of the shame of not being able to do it and being incompetent. And sometimes that shame still shows up. And I say, hey, shame, I recognize you. I see that you're here. I'll feel you. And then I'm going to ask for help. You know, something that I have been thinking about in this last year. I mean, I'm I'm still thinking about this idea of recognizing shame and calling it out and I just think that's so powerful, but I feel like so much of our experiences in the last year have felt backwards or upside down. Like I hear just nonstop from moms about how they are drowning. And it's work, it's virtual school, it's losing income, it's health concerns, it's mental health concerns. And, you know, there's a sense of they want to know how to handle it all. Like, how do I handle this, you know? And I personally think so much of what mothers have been asked to do over the last year plus is not handleable. Like, it's not a thing Mm -hmm. that can be handled. Um, Yeah, it's not. (laughs) And it, it wasn't working before the pandemic and, like, full stop, it's not working now. So, You know, we're not an advice show that tells mothers anything about, you know, how to live their best lives or be their best selves or anything like that. But I feel compelled to ask you, how do you think we can flip ourselves back? Or like maybe a better way to say this is how do we flip ourselves to where we could have been in thinking about and reacting to what is being asked of mothers right now? Yeah, that's a tough question. (laughs) Because when you were going through that list, I smiled because, yeah, I I do homeschool for my daughter. I work, I teach five classes. I cook. My partner helps with the cooking and cleaning, thankfully, and he's also working, which is great. Um, I'm having health issues. So all these things are accumulating, right? And it's like, there's this expectation for us to do the best that we can. And some days I can't, I literally can't. So yesterday afternoon was really tough. And I emailed my class. I said, I'm I'm not feeling good. I'm having a bad day. Class is canceled. <laughs> and for me, what, what I've noticed is that a lot of women in particular are being 100% authentic in saying, I can't do it. I mentally can't do it. I physically can't do it. So there's no more of this pseudo falseness or this fakery that we are superheroes and we can do everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we still have our, our superhero capes 
but I feel like that they're even bigger now because we've become more authentic in the truth of I can't do it all. And it's, it's beautiful. It's profound because for me, I was taught with not having to expose my weaknesses. And for my daughter, I want her to recognize that exposing your weaknesses can bring liberation to your life. And it's like, it's okay to say, I, I can't do it. I'm like, I, I have three emails that have been sitting in my inbox for a week. And I'm like, I can't, I don't have the power right now to respond. And when I do respond, I'm going to say that, like, I, I'm struggling mm-hmm. right now. And right. so I've, I've noticed, even on Twitter, I've noticed women tweeting, like, I responded to my boss today that I just can't get out of bed today. And that's my truth. Rather than, oh, <laughs> I have errands to run or I have an appointment. It's like mothers are now being 100% authentic and truthful. And there is, that's, the reality is that's okay. There's, there's mm-hmm. power there. I think that it's, it's beautiful. So I love what Andrea said. But I want to acknowledge that not all of us are able to speak out in quite the same way. Um, The reality is that some mothers don't have the option to call in sick or take some personal time. The financial risks might be too high. And some might not be ready or feel safe to express themselves in this way, in their homes or our personal lives. But I do really think that for many of us, and I think there's many of us who are realizing this, the risk is less than the reward. And that reward is feeling less alone and being able to stand in solidarity with other women. So if, like Andrea, we can speak up about what we're going through personally and emotionally, that is really powerful. And maybe it can make things easier down the road for those who come after us. I mean, I'm just obsessed with the idea and the power of what would happen if mothers, like, stopped worrying about inconveniencing people, like, yeah. with our emotions, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, sorry, not sorry to spouses, bosses, coworkers, and everyone. Like, we have <laughs> needs, and our needs are not mm-hmm. a problem. Like, that they're just, we have the right to have them. And so, you know, I just, this idea that feeling our feelings and being in touch with them is a, also a way we stand up for ourselves, like, that really speaks to me. Yes, absolutely. Feeling our feelings, which thank you, Andrea Landry, because I keep saying it, I keep thinking it. It's what's getting me through a lot of my feelings these days, the importance of that. Um, And when we do feel our feelings, we feel liberated. We're more free. Yeah, and that liberation can and will be political. So it's like, you know, (laughs) sitting outside, crying, Maybe we can start to see that as a first act of political liberation. If you'd like to follow Andrea Landry and learn more about her work, go to Instagram at Indigenous Motherhood or Twitter at Andrea Landry One. We'll link to these accounts in our show notes. And for member content next week, members will get our reoccurring series on what is bringing me and Angela comfort right now, and more from our conversation with Andrea, where we talk about what traditional kinship practices can look like, even while parenting during a pandemic. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. It starts at $5 a month, and if you're able to pay by the year, that helps us even more. 
Remember, Double Shift members get an ad-free show and weekly episodes. We can't make this show without you. If you haven't already, make sure you're following us on Instagram. It's where we share articles, photos of our guests we feature on the show, plus hot takes you need on motherhood from me and Angela. You can find us at The Double Shift. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Catherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We are also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music is by Travis Morrison and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Shreppel. We're funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift.